having lived, having died, having been raised, having ascended, now seated in glory as the King of kings and Lord of the lords. You've poured out your spirit upon your church, and we need your spirit this morning. Come, keep us awake, keep us alert, keep us attentive. Open our hearts to receive wonderful things from your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Do you ever um, stop to think about, have you ever stopped to think about, ponder, wonder about desire, longing? Do you ever, ever think about desire and longing? The Greeks thought about it. Uh, they, they thought a lot about desire. Buddhists, actually, Buddha thought a lot about desire, saw craving as actually an enemy, excessive desire uh, as an enemy. I I don't know when desire becomes excessive desire. I don't know when desire becomes craving. There's a little ice cream shop down on Ocean Drive that's called Cravings. They've tapped into something here. Uh, Have you ever thought about desire, the longing for something, and then the the possession of that thing just reflected upon these things, whether whether a meal, which, you know, probably in the next 30 minutes or so is going to become a distraction for a lot of us, longing for a meal, desire for a meal, or maybe a job, or, or maybe status, or a car, or a raise in pay, or the desire for a wife, or the desire for a husband, or the desire for some peace and quiet, or even a grandchild, the desire for a grandchild, the desire for some peace and quiet. There's always a kind of a double-edged sword to possessing what you desire, isn't there? There's always a kind of a double-edged sword. It's always a bittersweet sort of an experience because when you possess that thing that you desire, isn't it the case that it never seems to be quite enough? Here's, Here's one of my favorite Christmas stories. It's the story, if some of you have heard it, indulge me. It's the story of the nephew of a very good friend who, when he was seven years old, was entertained by his grandparents in their home on Christmas morning. And because he and his younger sister were the only two grandchildren in this Greek family, my big fat Greek wedding, the only two grandchildren in this Greek family, these two grandchildren, nephew, niece, were doted upon on this Christmas morning, and it probably wasn't the first time this had happened. Everybody brought all of the presents to these grandparents, to their home, and and the morning for these two kids became an orgy of ripping and shredding and tearing open presents. And I don't know how long it took them to do this, but after they were finished, 
little Peter, who was six or seven years old at the time, collapsed on this heap of open boxes and torn wrapping paper and ribbons and all the rest, and looked up at his Uncle John and said, More. More. I mean, every time my daughter Katie would take Lucy to Target, and they'd be in the toy section, she'd lock in on this on this little dog that would move when, when stimulated by any motion. And so, and so what do her stupid grandparents get for her for Christmas morning? The little dog. And I mean, within 90 seconds, she's beyond the dog. She's over the dog. And it's on to something else. Enough is never enough. Enough is never enough. It's really worth thinking about, reflecting upon the nature of desire, the nature of longing, and why it is that when I possess the thing that I long for, it's a bittersweet thing because enough is never enough. Some time ago, somebody asked me why so many people seem so fascinated with C.S. Lewis. What's the big deal with C.S. Lewis? I can't speak for others. But I can speak for myself, and the big deal about Lewis for me is that Lewis captures and taps in to this reality. The nature of longing, the nature of desire, and the fact that enough is never enough. Let me read just a couple of short quotations. Apparently then, Lewis wrote in an essay called The Weight of Glory, apparently then, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think Simeon would have loved C.S. Lewis, and I think C.S. Lewis will love being at the head of the line to meet Simeon in the new heaven and the new earth. I think they understand each other. Simeon is one of those persons who appears and disappears. There are several things that are said about Simeon. He shows up out of nowhere and then he disappears, stage left, gone, never heard from again. He's called righteous 
He's called devout. He's an upright man. He's a Job-like character. But here it seems to me is the real window into the soul of Simeon. It's verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting, waiting, waiting. We don't know very much at all about Simeon. Just what is here in Luke chapter 2. People have surmised that he was an older man because he seems to be at a place in his life of contentment on the one hand, but a kind of restless contentment, a contentment that would allow him once once the consummation of his longing and desire has been experienced, a man who's lived long enough to know that once he sees, once he tastes the consummation of his waiting and longing, he can die a happy man. It takes a while to get to that place. It takes experiencing the disappointment of the fulfillment of desires that can't satisfy the deepest longings and desires of my soul. Simeon probably probably was an older man who'd been down that road of desire and longing. Simeon was waiting, waiting for something bigger, something more real, more substantive. Waiting. Waiting is used in different ways in the Scriptures. We read from Isaiah that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Waiting is not conceived in that passage as a temporal sort of thing. It's not waiting for the train to arrive at the station. It's a word that expresses a kind of a looking and a dependence. Those who look to the Lord, those who wait upon the Lord, will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Did you ever notice in that passage there are three different paces? Some will fly, some will run, and some will walk. But strength will be given to each one who waits upon the Lord in order to run or to walk, or to soar. Waiting is used in that way in the Scriptures. It translates an Old Testament word that does have that connotation of dependence and and an upward look. But the word here is actually actually different. it's It's a kind of a surprising and striking word. Waiting. What does it mean to wait? You think about it. You wait for a traffic light to change. You, you wait in the express lane at Publix. We all know what that's like. You wait at the doctor's office. You wait for a project to be completed. You wait for a child to go to sleep. You hope that the child will sleep for 90 minutes and not wake up after 30. I've had some experiences. I think you're getting this over the course of the last week or so. You wake up at 4 a.m. and you wait for the daylight, waiting. But, But that's not the kind of waiting 
that this word expresses. Simeon's waiting is of a different sort. It is a waiting laced not with uncertainty or with ambiguity, but with a real certainty and a real clarity. And here are the striking things about this word, to wait. The the basic word means to wait for someone. To wait for someone. And, And it has the further connotation of receiving or giving access to oneself. So as you're waiting, it is implicit in that waiting that you are expecting to receive this person. This person is given access into your presence, into your friendship, into your companionship. I asked my son-in-law to preach the sermon that he preached last week because I heard him preach it to a bunch of college students in Berkeley, California, the sermon from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is a shepherd, and the Lord is a guide, and the Lord is a friend. It's all descriptive of the great shepherd, Jesus, but but Jesus is a shepherd to someone. Jesus is a guide to someone. Jesus is a friend to someone, and I am that one waiting to give access to this shepherd, guide, and friend. That's the posture of Simeon. That's the posture of Simeon. He's waiting. He's waiting for someone. He's not waiting for a thing. He's not waiting for an experience. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What a wonderful, wonderful word Console, it comes from two Latin words, with solace, right? It translates the Greek word periklesis, which is a word, an idea that's used over 150 times in the scriptures. Para, alongside, parallel lines, two lines that run alongside, two lines. Parallel. Para, alongside. And then the second part, paraclesis, from the verb kaleo, to call. One called alongside. And, and how does the old King James translate that paraclesis? How do many of the modern translations render that word? Comforter. Paraclesis. One called alongside. Simeon's posture is a posture of of waiting, looking, expecting, anticipating. One who would come alongside and who would bring solace. Who would bring these two Latin words, comforte, with strength. Who would bring solace and strength. Those are the words that render this idea of periclesis. It's, it's one of those Joseph's coat of many colors kind of words. It's one word, but it has all of these hues and all these subtle nuances. Simeon's posture is a posture of, of waiting for this, for this one who would come, who would come with solace, bringing real comfort and who would come with strength 
bringing real enabling power. But here's the other thing. This was a, this was a fun and striking discovery for me. It's the voice of the verb, waiting. It's the voice of the verb. You know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to embarrass myself by my lack of knowledge and understanding of the English language. But do we have any English teachers here who know the difference between tense and voice and number and those kinds of things? This verb is in, in an interesting voice. It's not in the active voice. It's not in the passive voice. It's in the middle voice. Now, let me see if I can explain this to you. I tried this once before, and I'm not sure it worked out so well. So let me, let me try again. If I'm washing your car, the verb would be in the active voice. Okay, I'm the subject of the action. I'm the one doing the washing. The car is the object, and so the verb is in the active voice. But if I want to focus my attention not so much on the subject, the one doing the work, but the work being done, and particularly the object of the work, I'd put the verb in the passive voice, and I would say the car is being washed. That's the passive voice. Are you with me so far? The middle voice is where? It's in the middle. And what does the middle voice reflect? What does it express? Well, here's the deal. If I want to convey the idea that I have real interest in the outcome of the washing of the car, if there is some personal benefit to me, or if it matters to me that this action is completed, I quite likely would put the verb in the middle voice. Because you see, while I'm still the subject, and the car is still the object, the middle voice conveys the idea that I have an interest in this, that there may be some benefit for me in it. It's a kind of a reflexive verb. It puts me where I always want to be, which is at the center of the universe. It makes it all about me. Well, in this case, it is all about Simeon. And the verb, this waiting verb, is in the middle voice because Simeon has a decided interest in what it is that he's waiting for. And Simeon understands that there is a most definite benefit to him and for him in the outcome and end of his waiting. And waiting then bridges us simply from the business of waiting in some temporal sense, waiting for the train to show up at its stop, waiting in the public's line behind the person who has 18 items instead of 12 items, when every sign in the place says, limit 12 items. This is a different kind of waiting. And that kind of waiting moves us across a line from merely standing in line to desire and longing Simeon's waiting is shot through with desire. 
It is shot through with longing. Matthew Henry actually captures this in his little comment on this verse. Matthew Henry, one of those dead white European males, one of those blessings God has given to his church. He was long a coming, Matthew Henry writes. And they who believed he would come continued waiting, desiring his coming and hoping for it with patience. I had almost said with some degree of impatience, waiting till it came. Waiting that is shot through with desire. That is what is going on in Simeon's soul, in Simeon's heart. Here's the point, not the only point, but here is a point. That's why I asked you the question at the beginning. Do you ever think about desire? Do you ever think about longing? Do you ever think about the fulfillment of desires and longings? Here's the point. Waiting, longing for the satisfaction, the consummation of longing and desire is a deeply human thing. It is a deeply human thing. I think the Buddhists and other Eastern mysticisms have it wrong when they view craving as an enemy, when they view desire, inordinate, excessive desire as an enemy. Let me suggest to you that desire and longing is actually the engine that drives your very existence. That longing is both the engine and even the superstructure and the foundation of the entirety of your life. And that without desire, you'd be Mr. Spock. And rather than being more than human, you'd be less than human. And isn't it the case that desire is not our problem? That longing is not our problem? Isn't it the case that my problem is that I attach my desire? I attach my desire. I attach my longing to Christmas presents. I attach my desire to mechanical dogs. I attach my heart to things which at bottom, at the end of the day, only break my heart. I've got to read this long passage for you. This is not a book report on C.S. Lewis. It's a sermon about Simeon and Simeon's legacy, which I hope, I hope, we capture something of a vision for for ourselves. But here's a rather lengthy citation. You're familiar with it, so many of you, but I'm going to read it anyway. This is Lewis in the same essay, The Weight of Glory. If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. And you see what has happened. 
A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I don't think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Do you catch what he says? If I heed the word of Jesus, and I follow hard after him, and I take up my cross daily, and I die to myself in the pursuit of obedience to Christ, what Lewis is saying is that every promise attached to that self-denial contains some strong hint or suggestion or promise related to desire, an appeal to desire. He who loses his life for my sake will find himself in a boiling cauldron Surrounded by African natives savaging him in order to consume him or her as an evening meal. He who loses his life for my sake will in fact find it. That's what Lewis is saying. And he goes on, if there lurks in most modern minds... The notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from alien sources and is no part of the Christian faith. Psalm 1611. You have shown me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you know what the cross means? The cross means that the path into the presence of the God in whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. The cross means the path is no longer blocked. The cross means the path is wide open to any who would come. So Lewis goes on, and this is the part that so many of you know. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I am a half-hearted creature fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. This is not a confession. I'm quoting Lewis. But I'm using the first person singular because I understand what he's getting at. I am a half-hearted creature fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to me, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because I simply cannot imagine what is meant 
by an offer of a holiday at the sea. I am far too easily pleased. That's Simeon. That's Simeon. His waiting was shot through with a righteous, holy, vigorous desire. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat and indulge yourself in fatness. No diets here. And what is the legacy of Simeon? What is Simeon saying to us? Simeon is saying, I can die a happy man because my waiting, shot through with longing, met the one object worthy of my insatiable appetite for joy. And that object worthy of my insatiable appetite, my desire, my longing is the consolation of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Lord. A caution as we close. Don't think Don't think for a moment that the deepest longings of your soul, the desire of your soul, will be fully satisfied here and now. You live in the in-between, my friends. You live in the already and the not yet. You get the appetizers. You get tastes. You get surprising experiences. But the not yet is still out in front of you. And you are exactly where Simeon was, holding the baby Jesus in the arms of your imagination and saying, I have tasted, I have seen that the Lord is good. I see the path of life. I see where joy everlasting is located. And I'm waiting for the consummation of the consolation of Israel. And here's my encouragement to myself and my encouragement to you. That you heed the promise of Hebrews. This is the practical thing, my friends, as you come to a new year. This is the first order of business for you, is to heed, given everything that we've said, is to heed this promise from Hebrews that God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Mechanical puppy dogs. God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. In the early 80s, one of my favorite Irish poets 
released some poetry. I don't have many favorite Irish poets. I only have a couple. But Paul David Hewson is one, a.k.a. Bono, who penned this phrase which I cling to as reflecting the sentiment that I'm trying to get over to us this morning. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He and the other band members who had embraced Christianity seemingly were roundly criticized. Roundly criticized. You claim to be Christians and you say you're still seeking. My friends, I've been a Christian for over 40 years and I still have not found what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is more than appetizers. More than imperfect and temporary experiences. What I am waiting for is the consummation of the consolation of Israel. And God promises to me and to you that he is the rewarder of the one who diligently seeks him because he is the consummation of the consolation of Israel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, would you give us grace? We cannot seek you apart from your seeking us. I cannot seek you apart from you seeking me. I beg you for this church, for these people who are here this morning, many of whom are not from around here. For them, I pray the same thing, and for us as a church, that you would give us grace that we might make you the chief object of our longing and desire. And, oh God, I beg you, because we so desperately need them, I beg you that you would give us tastes of your own glorious, beautiful, majestic, gracious presence along the way until we come to that day when we will enter into the full enjoyment of the consolation of Israel. God, keep us until we do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.